This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley. Read by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina during July and August of 2006. Chapter 16 Opera Synopses Some Sample Outlines of Grand Opera Plots for Home Study. Wann? Die Meistergenossenschaft. Seen the Forests of Germany. Time Antiquity. Cast Strudel, God of Rain. Schmaltz, God of Slight Drizzle. Immergluck, Goddess of the Six Primary Colors. Ludwig das Eweiss, the Knight of the Iron Duck. The Woodpecker. Argument. The basis of Die Meistergenossenschaft is an old legend of Germany which tells how the whale got his stomach. Act One. The Rhine at low tide just below Weltschnofen. Immergluck has grown weary of always sitting on the same rock with the same fishes swimming by every day, and sends for Schwül to suggest something to do. Schwül asks her how she would like to have passed before her all the wonders of the world fashioned by the hand of man. She says, Rotten. He then suggests that Ringblatz, son of Pflut, be made to appear before her and fight a mortal combat with the Iron Duck. This pleases Immergluck, and she summons to her the four dwarfs, hot water, cold water, cool and cloudy. She bids them bring Ringblatz to her. They refuse, because Pflut has at one time rescued them from being buried alive by acorns, and, in a rage, Immergluck strikes them all dead with a thunderbolt. Act Two A Mountain Pass Repenting of her deed, Immergluck has sought advice of the giants, Ophen and Besitz, and they tell her that she must procure the magic zither which confers upon its owner the power to go to sleep while apparently carrying on a conversation. This magic zither has been hidden for three hundred centuries in an old bureau drawer guarded by the Iron Duck, and, although many have attempted to rescue it, all have died of a strange ailment, just as success was within their grasp. But Immergluck calls to her side Dumpfboot, the tinsmith of the gods, and bids him make for her a tarnhelm, or invisible cap, which will enable her to talk to people without their understanding a word she says. For a dollar and a half extra, Dumpfboot throws in a magic ring which renders its wearer insensible. Thus armed, Emma Glock starts out for Valhalla, humming to herself. Act Three, The Forest Before the Iron Duck's Bureau Drawer 
Merglitz, who has up till this time held his peace, now descends from a balloon and demands the release of Betty. It has been the will of Wotan that Merglitz and Betty should meet on earth and hate each other like poison. But Zweibach, the druggist of the gods, has disobeyed and concocted a love potion which has rendered the young couple very unpleasant company. Wotan, enraged, destroys them with a protracted heat-spell. Encouraged by this sudden turn of affairs, Immerglock comes to earth in a boat drawn by four white Holsteins, and seated alone on a rock, remembers aloud to herself the days when she was a girl. Pilgrims from Ogenblick, on their way to worship at the shrine of Schmer, hear the sound of reminiscence coming from the rock, and stop in their march to sing a hymn of praise for the drying up of the crops. They do not recognize Immergluck, as she has her hair done differently, and think that she is a beggar-girl selling pencils. In the meantime, Rajel, the paper-cutter of the gods, has fashioned himself a sword on the forge of Schmaltz, and has called the weapon Assistance in Emergency. Armed with Assistance in Emergency, he comes to earth, determined to slay the iron duck, and carry off the beautiful Irma. But Frimsel overhears the plan, and has a drink brewed which is given to Rachel in a golden goblet, and which, when drunk, makes him forget his past, and causes him to believe that he is Schnorr, the god of fun. While laboring under this spell, Rachel has a funeral pyre built on the summit of a high mountain, and, after lighting it, climbs on top of it with a mandolin, which he plays until he is consumed. Emmerglock never marries. 2. Il Minestrone Peasant Love Scene Venice and all the point comfort. Time, early sixteenth century. Cast, Alfonso, Duke of Minestrone. Partola, a peasant girl. Clenso, Turino, and Bombo, young noblemen of Venice. Ludovico and Astolfo, Assassins in the service of Cafeteria Rusticana. Townspeople, cabbies, and sparrows. Argument. Il Minestrone is an allegory of the two sides of a man's nature, good and bad, ending at last in an awfully comical mess with everyone dead. Act One. A PUBLIC SQUARE, FERRARA During a peasant festival held to celebrate the sixth consecutive day of rain, Rudolfo, a young nobleman, sees Liliano, daughter of the village bell-ringer, dancing along, throwing artificial roses at herself. He asks his secretary who the young woman is, 
and his secretary, in order to confuse Rodolfo and thereby win the hand of his ward, tells him that it is his, Rodolfo's, own mother, disguised for the festival. Rodolfo is astounded. He orders her arrest. Act Two, Banquet Hall in Giorgio's Palace. Liliano has not forgotten Breda, her old nurse, in spite of her troubles, and determines to avenge herself for the many insults she received in her youth by poisoning her, Breda. She therefore invites the old nurse to a banquet and poisons her. Presently a knock is heard. It is Ugolfo. He has come to carry away the body of Michelo, and to leave an extra quart of pasteurized. Liliano tells him that she no longer loves him, at which he goes away, dragging his feet sulkily. Act Three, In front of Emilo's house, still thinking of the old man's curse, Borsa has an interview with Clenso, believing him to be the duke's wife. He tells him things can't go on as they are, and Clenso stabs him. Just at this moment, Betty comes rushing in from school and falls in a faint. Her worst fears have been realized. She has been insulted by Sigmundo, and presently dies of old age. In a fury, Ugolfo rushes out to kill Sigmundo, and, as he does so, the dying Rosenblatt rises on the one elbow and curses his mother. 3. Lucy de Lima Scene, Wales, time, 1700, Greenwich Cast, William Want, Lord of Glen. Lucy Wagstaff, his daughter. Bertram, her lover. Lord Roger, friend of Bertram. Irma, attendant to Lucy. Friends, retainers, and members of the local lodge of Elks. Argument. Lucy de Lima is founded on the well-known story by Boccaccio of the same name and address. Act One, Gypsy Camp near Waterbury. The gypsies, led by Edith, go singing through the camp on the way to the fair. Following them comes Despard, the gypsy leader, carrying Ethel, whom he has just kidnapped from her father, who had previously just kidnapped her from her mother. Despard places Ethel on the ground and tells Mona, the old hag, to watch over her. Mona nurses a secret grudge against Despard for having once cut off her leg and decides to change Ethel for Nettie, another kidnapped child. Ethel pleads with Mona to let her stay with Despard, for she has fallen in love with him on the ride over. But Mona is obdurate. Act Two, The Fair A crowd of sightseers and villagers is present. Roger appears looking for Laura. He cannot find her. Laura appears looking for Roger. 
she cannot find him the gypsy queen approaches roger and thrusts into his hand the locket stolen from lord brim roger looks at it and is frozen with astonishment for it contains the portrait of his mother when she was in high school he then realizes that laura must be his sister and starts out to find her act three hall in the castle lucy is seen surrounded by every luxury but her heart is sad she has just been shown a forged letter from stuart saying that he no longer loves her and she remembers her old free life in the mountains and longs for another romp with raven's bane and wolf's head her old pair of rompers the guests begin to assemble for the wedding each bringing a roast ox they chide lucy for not having her dress changed just at this moment the gypsy band bursts in and cleon tells the wedding party that elsie and not edith is the child who was stolen from the summer-house showing the blood-stained darby as proof at this lord brim repents and gives his blessing on the pair while the fishermen and their wives celebrate in the courtyard chapter seventeen the young ideas shooting gallery since we were determined to have junior educated according to modern methods of child training a year and a half did not seem too early an age at which to begin as doris said there is no reason why a child of a year and a half shouldn't have rudimentary cravings for self-expression. And really, there isn't any reason when you come right down to it. Doris had been reading books on the subject and had been talking with Mrs. Deemster. Most of the trouble in our town can be traced back to someone's having been talking with Mrs. Deemster. Mrs. Deemster brings an evangelical note into the simplest conversations so that by the time your wife is through the second piece of cinnamon toast, she is convinced that all children should have their knee-pants removed before they are four, or that you should hire four servants a day on three-hour shifts, or that, as in the present case, no child should be sent to a regular school until he has determined for himself what his profession is going to be, and then should be sent straight from the home to Johns Hopkins or the Sorbonne. Junior was to be left entirely to himself, the theory being that he would find self-expression in some form or another, and that by watching him carefully it could be determined just what should be developed in him, or, rather, just what he should be allowed to develop in himself. He was not to be corrected in any way, or guided, and he was to call us Doris and Monty instead of Mother and Father. We were to be just pals, nothing more. Otherwise, his individuality would become submerged. I was, however, to be allowed to pay what few bills he might incur until he should find himself. The first month that Junior was on his own, striving for self-expression, he spent practically every waking hour of each day in picking the mortar out from between the bricks in the fireplace and eating it. Don't you think you ought to suggest to him that nobody who really is anybody eats mortar, I said, 
"'I don't like to interfere,' replied Doris. "'I'm trying to figure out what it may mean. "'He may have the makings of a sculptor in him.' "'But one could see that she was a little worried. "'So I didn't say the cheap and obvious thing. "'That, at any rate, he had the makings of a sculpture in him, "'or would have in a few more days of self-expression. "'Soft putty was put at his disposal.' in case he might feel like doing a little modeling. We didn't expect much of him at first, of course, maybe just a panther or a little General Sherman, but if that was to be his métier, we weren't going to have it said that his career was nipped in the bud for the lack of a little putty. The first thing that he did was to stop up the keyhole in the bathroom door while I was in the tub, so that I had to crawl out on the piazza roof and into the guest-room window. It did seem as if there might be some way of preventing a recurrence of that sort of thing without submerging his individuality too much. But Doris said no. If he were disciplined now, he would grow up nursing a complex against Putty and against me, and might even try to marry Aunt Marion. She had read of a little boy who had been punished by his father for putting soap on the cellar stairs, and from that time on, all the rest of his life, every time he saw soap he went to bed and dreamed that he was riding in the cab of a runaway engine dressed as Pierrot, which meant, of course, that he had a suppressed desire to kill his father. It almost seemed, however, as if the risk were worth taking if Junior could be shown the fundamentally antisocial nature of an act like stuffing keyholes with putty, but nothing was done about it except to take the putty supply away for that day. The chief trouble came, however, in Junior's contacts with other neighborhood children whose parents had not seen the light. When Junior would lead a movement among the young bloods to pull up the Hemmings' nasturtiums, or would show flashes of personality by hitting little Leda Hemming over the forehead with a trowel, Mrs. Hemming could never be made to see that to reprimand Junior would be to crush out his God-given individuality. All she would say was, "'Just look at those nasturtiums!' over and over again. And the Hemming children were given to understand that it would be all right if they didn't play with Junior quite so much. This morning, however, the thing solved itself. While expressing himself in putty in the nursery, Junior succeeded in making a really excellent life-mask of Mrs. Deemster's fourteen-month-old little girl who would come over to spend the morning with him. She had a little difficulty in breathing, but it really was a fine mask. Mrs. Deemster, however, didn't enter into the spirit of the thing at all, and after excavating her little girl, took Doris aside. It was decided that Junior is perhaps too young to start in on his career unguided. That is Junior that you can hear now, I think. Chapter 18 Polyp with a past, the story of an organism with a heart. Of all forms of animal life, the polyp is probably the most neglected by fanciers. People seem willing to pay attention to anything, cats, lizards, canaries, or even fish, 
but simply because the polyp is reserved by nature and not given to showing off or wearing its heart on its sleeve it is left alone under the sea to slave away at coral building with never a kind word or a pat on the tentacles from anybody it was quite by accident that i was brought face to face with the human side of a polyp I had been working on a thesis on emotional crises in sponge life and came upon a polyp formation on a piece of coral in the course of my laboratory work. To say that I was astounded would be putting it mildly. I was surprised. The difficulty in research work in this field came in isolating a single polyp from the rest in order to study the personal peculiarities of the little organism, for, as is so often the case, even, I fear, with us great big humans sometimes, the individual behaves in an entirely different manner in private from the one he adopts when there is a crowd around, and a polyp, among all creatures, has a minimum of time to himself in which to sit down and think. There is always a crowd of other polyps dropping in on him, urging him to make a fourth in a string of coral beads, or just to come out and stick around on a rock for the sake of good fellowship. The one which I finally succeeded in isolating was an engaging organism with a provocative manner, and a little way of wrinkling up its ectoderm which put you at once at your ease. There could be no formality about your relations with this polyp five minutes after your first meeting. You were just like one great big family. Although I have no desire to retail gossip, I think that readers of this treatise ought to be made aware of the fact, if indeed they do not already know it, that a polyp is really neither one thing nor another in matters of gender. One day it may be a little boy polyp, another day a little girl, according to its whim or practical considerations of policy. On grey days, when everything seems to be going wrong, it may decide that it will be neither boy nor girl, but will just drift. I think that if we big human cousins of the little polyp were to follow the example set by these lowliest of God's creatures in this matter, we all would find ourselves much better off in the end. Am I not right, little polyp? What was my surprise, then, to discover my little friend one day in a gloomy and morose mood? It refused the peanut butter which I had brought it, and I observed through the microscope that it was shaking with sobs. Lifting it up with a pair of pinches, I took it over to the window to let it watch the automobiles go by, a diversion which had in the past never failed to amuse but I could see that it was not interested. A tune from the Victrola fell equally flat. Even though I set my little charge on the center of the disc and allowed it to revolve at a dizzy pace, which Frolic usually sent it into spasms of excited giggling, something was wrong. It was under emotional stress of the most racking kind. I consulted Klunsinger's Die Corolinthiae de Rothenmeeres, and there found that at an early age the polyp is quite likely to become the victim of a sentimental passion which is directed at its own self. In other words, my tiny companion was in love with itself. 
bitterly, desperately, head over heels in love. In an attempt to divert it from this madness, I took it on an extended tour of the continent, visiting all the old cathedrals and stopping at none but the best hotels. The malady grew worse instead of better. I thought that perhaps the warm sun of Granada would bring the color back into those pale tentacles, but there the inevitable romance in the soft air was only fuel to the flame, and in the shadow of the Alhambra my little polyp gave up the fight and died of a broken heart without ever having declared its love to itself. I returned to America shortly after, not a little chastened by what I had witnessed of nature's wonders in the realm of passion. Chapter 19 Holt! Who Goes There? The reliance of young mothers on Dr. Emmett Holt's The Care and Feeding of Children has become a national custom. Especially during the early infancy of the first baby does the sun rise and set by what Holt says. But there are several questions which come to mind which are not included in the handy questionnaire arranged by the noted child specialist, and as he is probably too busy to answer them himself, we have compiled an appendix which he may incorporate in the next edition of his book if he cares to. Of course, if he doesn't care to, it isn't compulsory. Bathing. What should the parent wear while bathing the child? A rubber loincloth will usually be sufficient, with perhaps a pair of elbow guards and anti-skid gloves. A bath should never be given a child until at least one hour after eating, that is, after the parent has eaten. What are the objections to face cloths as a means of bathing children? They are too easily swallowed, and after six or seven wet face cloths have been swallowed, the child is likely to become heavy and lethargic. Under what circumstances should the daily tub bath be omitted? Almost any excuse will do. The bathroom may be too cold or too hot, or the child may be too sleepy or too wide awake, or the parent may have lame knees or lead poisoning. And anyway, the child had a good bath yesterday. Clothing. How should the infant be held during dressing and undressing? Any carpenter will be glad to sell you a vice which can be attached to the edge of the table. Place the infant in the vice and turn the screw until there is a slight redness under the pressure. Be careful not to turn it too tight or the child will resent it. But, on the other hand, care should be taken not to leave it too loose. Otherwise, the child will be continually falling out on the floor, and you will never get it dressed that way. What are the most important items in the baby's clothing? The safety pins, which are in the bureau in the next room. Weight. How should a child be weighed? Place the child in the scales. The father should then sit on top of the child to hold him down. Weigh father and child together. Then deduct the father's weight from the gross tonnage and the weight of the child is the result. Fresh air. What are the objections to an infant's sleeping out of doors? 
Sleeping out of doors in the city is all right, but children sleeping out of doors in the country are likely to be kissed by wandering cows and things. This should never be permitted under any circumstances. Development When does the infant first laugh aloud? When the father tries to pin it up for the first time. If at two years the child makes no attempt to talk, what should be suspected? That it hasn't yet seen anyone worth talking to. Feeding. What should not be fed to a child? Ripe olives. How do we know how much food a healthy child needs? By listening carefully. Which parent should go and get the child's early morning bottle? The one least able to feign sleep. Chapter 20. The Committee on the Whole. A new plan has just been submitted for running the railroads. That makes 111. The present suggestion involves the services of some 16 committees. Now, presumably, the idea is to get the roses back into the cheeks of the railroads so that they will go running about from place to place again and perhaps make a little money on pleasant Saturdays and Sundays. But if these proposed committees are anything like the other committees which we have had to do with, the following will be a fair example of how our railroads will be run. The subcommittee on the punching of rebate slips will have a meeting called for 5 o'clock in the private grill room at the Pan American building. Postcards will have been sent out the day before by the secretary saying, please try to be present as there are several important matters to be brought up. This will so pique the curiosity of the members that they will hardly be able to wait until five o'clock. One will come at four o'clock by mistake, and after steaming up and down the corridor for half an hour, will go home and send in his resignation. At 5.10, the secretary will bustle in with a briefcase and a map showing the weather areas over the entire United States for the preceding year. He will be very warm from hurrying. At 5.15, two members of the committee will stroll in, one of them saying to the other, So the Irishman turns to the Jew and says, Well, I knew your father before that. <laughs> I knew your father before that. They will then seat themselves at one end of the committee table, just as another member comes hurrying in. Time, 5.21. One of the storytellers, being the chairman, he will pound half-heartedly on the table and say, As some of us have to get away early, I think that we had better begin now, although Mr. Entwistle and Dr. Purley are not here. I met Dr. Purley last night at the Vegetarian Club dinner, says one of the new members. And he said that he might be a little late today, but that he would surely come. His wife has just had a very delicate throat operation, I understand, offers a committee man who is drawing concentric circles on his pad of paper. Bad weather for throat operations, says the secretary. That's right, says the chairman, looking through a pile of papers for one which he has left at home. But let's get down to business. At the last meeting, the question arose as to whether or not it was advisable to continue having conductors punch the little hole at the bottom of the rebate slips. 
As you know, the slip says, not redeemable if punched here. Now, someone brought up the point that it seems silly to give out a rebate slip at all if there isn't going to be any rebate on it. A subcommittee was appointed to go into the matter, and I would like to ask Mr. Twing, the chairman, what he has to report. Mr. Twing will clear his throat and start to speak, but will make only an abortive sound. He will then clear his throat again. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, the other members of the subcommittee and myself were unable to get exactly the data on this that we wanted, and I delegated Mr. Entwistle to dig up something which he said he had read recently in the files of the Scientific American. But Mr. Entwistle doesn't seem to be here today, and so I, I am unable to report his findings. It was, however, the sense of the meeting that the conductors should not. Should not what? inquires Dr. Purley, who has just sneaked in, knocking three hats to the floor while hanging up his coat. Dr. Purley is never answered, for the chairman looks at his watch and says, I'm very sorry, gentlemen, but I have an appointment at 5.45 and must be going. Supposing I appoint a subcommittee consisting of Dr. Purley, Mr. Twing, and Mr. Berry to find Mr. Entwistle and see what he dug out of the files of the Scientific American. Then, at the next meeting, we can have a report from both subcommittees, and we'll also hear from Professor McClicktrick, who has just returned from Panama. A motion to adjourn is now in order. Do I hear such a motion? After listening carefully, he hears it, and the railroads run themselves for another week. This is the end of Part 4 of Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley, read by Ted DeLorme for LibriVox. This book will continue on future files.